I am really happy, excited, honored to be sitting here for the next fireside chat with our next guest. Um, for those of you who were here yesterday when we had Vice President Biden here to talk about the moonshots, um, the thing that a lot of people don't know is that there is a huge team behind, uh, behind the Vice President that is orchestrating, organizing, and making sure that as the Vice President as the Vice President um, does his meetings, that data is collected, and that everything that happens actually gets executed. And the man standing next to me is truly the, the, the power horse behind all of that. So I'm excited to welcome Greg Simon, the Executive Director of the Federal Cancer Moonshot. Please welcome him. So thank you for being here, truly. Thank you, Howard. Great to see you. This is, this is fun because Greg and I uh, have spent a lot of time over the last uh, 10 months together as we've sort of traveled the world and uh, sat in, in a, lot of, a lot of the vice president's meetings. So let's just, I just want to sort of get everybody up to speed on um, who you are because you've had an incredible personal and professional uh, journey over the last several years, the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to give people an understanding of why you're so passionate about cancer and um, talk a little bit about your personal history and your personal journey over the last few years. Well, thank you, and th thank you all for having me. Um, I didn't know I was passionate about cancer. Um, in uh, 2003, I was running my own consulting company working with technology companies primarily around uh, broadband issues, when one of my clients got multiple myeloma and um, went through hell, uh, lived 10 more years, but uh, after he went through hell and got back on the street, he introduced me to Mike Milken, and uh, Mike Milken uh, convinced me to leave my own business and start uh, an organization called Faster Cures. Um, in Faster Cures, we weren't about cancer, we were about changing the way we do research across the board. And in the process, we met a lot of incredibly passionate people from all walks of life and all disease groups. Uh, and they all had the same problem, culture. It wasn't money, it wasn't the science, it wasn't technology, it was the way people do things. So we started focusing on culture and um, uh, Six years later, um, the head of Pfizer called me up and said, we need to change our culture. We want you to come here and reimagine our patient engagement program and our policy. So I went and did that. And uh, when he left, I left, which is always a good idea in a big company. When the CEO who hires you leaves, you need to leave. Because the next thing that happens is Max von Sydow comes in and kills everybody in the room. and. It's like three days of the condor, if you've ever seen three days of the condor. Um, anyway, so I was wondering what I was going to do next when, through a bizarre series of accidents, I ended up running a company called Polywog, uh, which was focused on democratizing investment in health companies by creating ways for people to invest in the diseases they care about. Um, and I was passionate uh, about all of that. I didn't know I was passionate about cancer yet until um, I had a physical, and I was on my way to San Francisco to visit a friend of mine who's a doctor. Uh, you probably know him, Jordan Schlein. 
And um, I'm getting off the plane, and I hadn't gotten the results of my physical yet. And so I called my doctor because he was going to close if I didn't call right away. And he said, uh, your cholesterol is good, uh, your PSA is good, but by the way, you have leukemia. And I said, what do you mean by the way I have leukemia? I mean, isn't that the way? Isn't that like in the middle of the way? Um, so uh, a year went by without having to be treated, and then I had a year of chemotherapy uh, three days a month, and couldn't have had a better experience if you have to have chemotherapy. I didn't get sick, I didn't get nauseous, I didn't get tired, I didn't miss any work except for the one treatment in the hospital. Uh, but at the same time that I was diagnosed with leukemia, a very good friend of mine, 40 years old, with two young children, was diagnosed with glioblastoma. And I knew that by the time I was done with my chemo that she would be gone. And that's exactly what happened. So this time last year, I finished my last chemo, and she died last February. And that's when I really got passionate about cancer. And right at that time, Vice President Biden's chief of staff called me up and said, we're doing this moonshot thing. We need someone who understands science policy, cancer politics, and has worked in the White House before. And this Venn diagram appeared over my head, and I realized that was me. And somebody said, well, this is what your whole life has led you to. And I said, well, yeah, but that could be on my tombstone, too. Um, so that's when I first met Vice President Biden. I had not met him before. And it's been the journey of a lifetime this one year, and it has been an incredible experience getting to know him, getting to know Howard, and getting to know people all over the world who care about cancer, many of whom are here today. Um, so you never know what life will lead you to be passionate about. This was a pretty straight line for me. Absolutely. The interesting thing, you, you sort of brushed over quickly the, the Faster's Cure, but as the, uh, as, as the director and one of the co-founders of Faster Cures, you were truly one of the original disruptors of healthcare and of foundations. You basically called people out and said, wait a second, this isn't the way to A, raise money and spend the money. You're putting it to administration and into your own pockets and you're not actually helping people. So I think that one of the circles of the Venn diagram should also be that you know how to disrupt and change an industry for, for, the, for the better. I was gonna say, so can you tell us just a little bit about the, about the um, about faster cures and about the, the resistance that you sort of had to go up against to make faster cures what it was, and well, that was a big success and a, and a change in an entire industry. Well, first, I'm in my car, and, and my, my cancer patient client calls me and says, will you talk to Mike Milken? He's got a job for you. And I said, well, you know, I've got a job. And he said, but he wants to talk to you about this new idea he has for a nonprofit, and I thought he meant he was gonna set me up a few weeks later. So he sa I said, well, of course I would talk to Mike Milken. And so he, he says, well, I've got him on hold. And, uh, and so I'm in my car waiting for my kids at a train station from a class trip, and here's Mike Milken asking me about my family and my life, and why don't you come to New York and have lunch with me? So I did, and in the middle of this three-hour lunch, he said something that turned everything for me. And I'm talking to one of the most important people in the history of American innovation, who's wealthy, and who was supposed to be dead 20 years ago from cancer. And he said, my only scarce resource 
is time. And that really punched me right here, and I thought, okay, I got to do this. So what was this? So I'm sitting there by myself at a desk, starting it, and I said, how do I do this? How do I change the culture of research? And I thought, well, somebody's changing it already. I just have to find them. So we started putting meetings together of people that I read about that were doing innovative things and inviting people from completely different disciplines and diseases to meet with those people. And all of a sudden, this great thing started happening where people who never go to each other's conferences were in the same room. And it was a bizarre living room at an Esquire model house that's done by designers and takes you out of your, right, your left brain into your right brain. And you have David Baltimore sitting on a zebra skin couch. Uh, changes the conversation. And that's when we had this breakthrough that what everybody was dealing with was that they were building jet engines for the train to run research. But that train had to run on the same track that we've had since the Civil War. So it doesn't matter how strong your engine is, the track determines the speed, not the engine. So we became the track people because we didn't give away money, we didn't raise money for causes. We wanted to change the track so you could do it faster, better job, which is a lot what Startup Health does, right? They help change the environment for what you're doing. So that led to starting to do real things to deal with the relation with philanthropists, the relation with VCs, the relationship with universities, the relationship with uh, the, uh, the government, all the things that held people back. And we did these, every quarter we'd pick a different problem and invite people in to help solve it. And finally, one philanthropist stood up one day, this was a great moment, and said, I have no idea where to put my money when I care about a disease. Because being a philanthropist, talking to a foundation, is like dating. Everybody's lying. I'm telling them I'm not going to interfere with their work, and I am. They're telling me they're on the verge of a breakthrough, and they're not. It's not till you get married you find out what the deal is. How do we figure that out? So we started a program to advise philanthropists on where to put their money based on the mission of the people working in a given disease and how congruent their actual activities were with the mission. So if they say they're doing the genetics of Alzheimer's, we would look at their grants, their board, their employees, their network and say, did you really do that or are you doing something else? And then make that report available to the world and help people figure out where to put their money. And that's what made Faster Cures grow, was because we started adding value to the community and value to the philanthropy community, and then it became a real engine of cultural discussion and cultural change. It's amazing. So, as you mentioned before, everybody sort of says that uh, due to your past experiences, your journey was leading you to sort of to, to run the moonshot. And it sounds like the experience that you had, and I love the analogy of it doesn't matter how fast the jet engine is or what your, what your hopes for the jet engine, if it's running on the tracks that the train ran on, that's your limit. How has the past experience of working with Faster Cures prepared you for, for the moonshot, and what similarities do you see currently within academics, within healthcare, within all of the stakeholders that are trying to participate in the cure of cancer? Do you see a lot of similarities in the fact that it doesn't matter what they're saying, 
there's only so, so fast that they can go. Yeah. Well, if you think that patients are not at the center of things now, you should have seen it in 2003. Uh, it was a big deal to tell people you need to put the patients in the room when you design a clinical trial. You need to put the patients in the room when you're discussing your next drug development project. That just wasn't done. When I was at Pfizer in 2009, we brought rheumatoid arthritis patients in to meet the, meet the bench scientists. Two things came out of that meeting. Number one, well, three things. Number one, they had never met anybody with the condition. Number two, they all said we had no idea how painful it was for people to give themselves an injection. And number three, they said we had no idea how many people can't afford this. So putting patients at the center was the first thing we did at Faster Cures, and it's the first thing we did at the Moonshot. It's the very first thing. And the second thing was the culture of sharing doesn't happen by default. In fact, it never happens by default. It has to be designed. It has to be executed. And it has to be an essential element of what you're doing. And that has not been the case for decades in medicine. And that's what the vice president really focused on, was we can use big data to save lives, but the data we have isn't big. And it's not big because your medical record never leaves your hospital. Your researcher never gets their data out of their university. Drug companies don't share their clinical trial failures with anybody. You can't have big data analysis if you don't have big data. And by big data, I mean big data, not just one clinical trial. So everything I learned at Faster Cures, I had to do in spades with the moonshot. Yeah. What, so now that you've been with the moonshot for the last 10, 12, 11 months, what do you see as, oh, sorry. There you, got it. there you go, thank you. What do you see as the biggest obstacle in, in actually getting people, getting institutions, companies, the private sector, all the stakeholders, A, to work together, and, and B, to share the data that they're, that they're collecting um, across the board? It doesn't matter whether it's domestically or globally. Uh, us, we're the biggest problem, all of us. We don't demand that our doctors share our information. We don't, train, we don't train people to share. We don't reward them for sharing. We don't, we don't give them tenure for sharing. In fact, we penalize them for sharing. We don't reward them for working with people at another institution. And that's all because of what's going on in here that medical progress is still viewed, as the, as the Vice President said yesterday, the Jonas Salk great white man model of discovery. And I mean great white man model of discovery. That's still how people see it. So to change the world, you have to change this world. And we have to be willing to make sharing the sine qua non of everything we do in educating people, in interacting with them, so, for instance, we had a big meeting with the electronic health record companies, Epic and Cerner, and Judy Faulkner was there. And the issue came up about giving patients access to their complete record so they can use it. And the question the companies ask is, why do they want it? It's a thousand pages, and they understand maybe ten pages of the whole thing. And the vice president gave them the right answer. Not your problem. 
I might want to nail it to the wall at my house. That's my business, and it's my data. So quit asking me why I want it. Just tell me you're going to give it to me now, cheap, and let me do what I want with it. Sure, I don't understand 90% of it, but the people I'm going to give it to understand it. The researchers understand it. My doctor understands it. It's not your business to ask me why I want what is mine. Just give it to me. And by the way, collect it in a way that makes sense at the beginning. Instead of saying, well, we can't interoperate because we didn't design our system to interoperate. Well, we gave you $30 billion in the Economic Recovery Act to, for people to buy your system, change your system. You can do it. And I think it's starting to take hold. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the keys, is right, making, making the people who are taking the money from the federal govern, government responsible for the results and for allowing the integration and sharing of the, the, the medical information, the record. I think one of, the favorite, one of my favorite things that I would hear the vice president say is that uh, if you don't think people want to share their medical record for research, let me tell you, put me on TV for five minutes, he says, I'll have more people sending their information than you can imagine. We just need to figure out how to do it and where to put it. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you, what makes you, so you've, you, you've, you've been running the moonshot, you're seeing it from the backstage now. What makes you most optimistic for the future of the, uh, the prevention or cure of cancer? Well, 10 years ago, I would not have had the experience I had last year. Um, a lot of the hope that I had was that if the thing they gave me first didn't work, there were nine more things they could give me. That did not exist 10 years ago. Um, the other thing is, uh, I've, I was in government 20 years ago for 12 years, and I did a lot of stuff between then and now, and I worked on a lot of things that affect people's lives, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that Jerry probably wakes up having nightmares about even today was a 10-year effort to let people communicate and share information on any network they want, any way they want. But nothing, nothing captured the imagination of the American public more than the cancer moonshot with Joe Biden. We are getting incoming even now with only 10 days left I'm getting incoming of people who want to volunteer, of companies that want to do new things, of patients that want to give me advice from all over the country. It is no longer a program in the White House. It is a movement. And as the Vice President said yesterday, he's going to join the movement he started by creating the Biden Cancer Initiative to take to the nonprofit sector his energy to continue to organize people around fixing these problems that hold us back in cancer research, cancer care, community access, reducing disparities, because it's still true that where you live determines whether you live if you have cancer. And that's unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. And if you have insurance, you're more likely to survive cancer than if you don't. So when people talk about repealing Obamacare, tell the millions of people who might die because their cancer is not diagnosed that that's an acceptable consequence of an ideological battle against the Affordable Care Act. I think that's unconscionable.
Absolutely. Uh, so you, you brought this up, so I'm, I'm just going to ask the question because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. So 10 days left, new administration. What are the plans for the Cancer Moonshot? What do you think is going to happen? Who, if anybody, might run it or take it over? He's going to kill me for that question. But uh, can, you, can you enlighten us on what's the White House feeling right now as, as the time's winding down? Well, there's hardly anybody left in the White House. They've been uh, off-boarding Syriatim. Uh, all my team is gone except two people. Um, we had nine people at the, at the height. Um, <clears throat> first, um, the Vice President's going to Davos to talk about cancer, which is where he started last year. Um, and then we come back and turn in our badges and leave. And um, we will continue, we people who've been working on the moonshot, will continue to support him formally or informally around the cancer initiative to set up this new nonprofit. But most importantly, this was never an, an activity that depended on an office in the White House. It depended on a person in the White House, and that person was Joe Biden. So if he continues to do this, there will continue to be a moonshot, whatever they call it. The agency activities that we created and provoked continue. They're run by career people. They have money. It's mission-related. Unless someone comes in and says, stop trying to cure cancer, they'll keep going. Um, I hope the jury is not out on that one. Uh, the private sector is taking their challenge very seriously. They're going to keep going. Uh, patients are going to keep going. So we won't have the imprimatur of the White House. But as I told Vice President, people didn't follow you because you're the Vice President. They followed you because of your authenticity in this arena and because of your personal experience and because you are devoting your life to giving them hope. That is why they're following you, and that continues no matter whether you're in office or you're not in office. So, that's so true. So your experience with Vice President Biden, if you go back to you worked with, with Al Gore, then you work with Mike Milken, now you're working with, with Joe Biden. Um, some incredible leaders that you've had the, the, truly the honor, the pleasure to, to work with on a, on a very intimate and personal level. What, are there any common themes that you see that these leaders all have, uh, the way they treat people, the way they think about things, the way they execute? Hmm. Those are three very, very different people. Um, but if I had to say one thing they have in common, um, and they express it differently, it is an incredible passion for what it is they're doing. They're not doing it for other reasons. They're doing it for the thing itself. You may not think Al Gore is a passionate person, but if you've ever seen him live talk about climate change, you know he's a passionate person. When Mike Milken talks about innovation and the challenge of breaking through the culture that only wanted to fund people who were not at risk of failure, you see an incredible passion. And with Joe Biden, you saw it yesterday, he's not doing what he's doing for any reason other than, than to do the thing itself. And if whether you're a musician or a carpenter, or President of the United States, 
if you're not focused on what you're doing to do what the thing is, but you're doing it to get somewhere else, you're not really passionate about it. There's a book uh, that some of you will remember, Stranger in a Strange Land, where the word grok came from. Like, I don't grok that. Most of you probably haven't read it. But the character who comes from another planet to Earth has one quality that all the women really loved. And that is, when he kissed them, he was only thinking about kissing them. And it became a theme in the book that this guy focuses on what he's doing, not where it's going to get him. And it, I've always remembered that because I thought, this is a guy with discipline. He's only thinking about the moment. He's not thinking about how to get anywhere else. When you're a musician, you've got to be focused on the moment. And that's what makes Yo-Yo Ma so great. You can see it in him. You know he's focused on the moment. He's not driving to the applause. That's a trait that successful people all have. And it's one that I've been able to observe close up. And it's, it's, really, it's really great. The other thing about Joe is <clears throat> it's nice to work for someone whose net worth is much closer to mine. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good well, no, I'm going to leave that it's all alone. It I'm not it even going to comment on that. Uh, but it's a perfect transition for the, when you talk about the passion, and whether it's with these leaders or certainly we see it with our, with it, with our health transformers. Um, everybody has a story, but the real key to the transformation of healthcare is the passion, is you're doing it for the right reasons. You want to see a change, you know there needs to be a change. What advice, because I get this all the time, what advice would you have for entre entrepreneurs, for the companies that are out there that are both in the, in the cancer space, trying to do the cancer moonshot, or other moonshots, to get involved, get involved either with the cancer moonshot, the federal moonshot, how to get involved with once the, the Biden Cancer Initiative starts, or even just get involved with NIH and some things at the White House? Well, I would, I would give anybody who wants to help deal with cancer and deal with the moonshot the same um, request that we gave the task force you know I'm sitting in a room with 20 agencies they're thinking very programmatically and they gave us a PowerPoint of all their programs and what they thought it meant to do moonshot things and it generally meant do 10% more and I'm looking at these slides where they want to do 10% more and I thought, okay, we got to start it from the beginning. So I asked them to do two things. Number one, look at the work you're doing and figure out where it touches a patient on their journey. From prevention to detection, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Figure out where your agency, whether you're NASA, the VA, the National Endowment for the Arts, DOE, DOD, where do you touch patients and how do you impact them today? Figure out how to double that impact in half the time. That's number one. Number two was look around the room of all these other agencies and find one you've never worked with and do something together. So NCI partnered with NASA. The VA is partnering with the National Endowment for the Arts. The DOD is working with IBM and the VA. And you might think, well, surely the DOD and the VA work together a lot. No. Um, so all of a sudden, people were talking to the patent office. 
coordinating with the National Cancer Institute to monitor new patent applications to see which funded programs in the government were most productive in leading to new patents. They'd never done that before. So everybody had a role to play in a new, with a new partner, but always with the goal of changing the way they impact patients on their journey to double their impact in half the time. And that's what I would tell anybody. When people call me up and they say, we're technology company number 33, how can we help the moonshot? I say, well, I can't tell you your business, you know it better than I do, but you come back and tell me how you affect patients today and how you want to double that in half the time. If you need help, if you need partners, if you need visibility, we'll help you. And that's what I think we could do the best. That's absolutely awesome. So I'm going to open it up, if it's okay, just to a couple questions. I know a lot of people have asked, uh, you know, very specific things about the moonshot and some general things about, uh, about what's going on in the White House. So does, uh, are there any questions out there? Hi, Greg. Over here. Oh, hey, Alex. Hey. Um, oh, fake, so, go figure, he knows it. <laughs> <laughs> my question for you is, what's the one thing, you just had 11 months, you accomplished a ton, and your team accomplished a ton, what's the one thing that you still wish you could have gotten to that you hope to see happen once you leave? Uh, there are two things. One is uh, the role of nutrition in uh, prevention and uh, treatment of cancer. That's a hard one to tackle quickly with de definition. We've been working on that forever. I saw Dean Ornish somewhere here. Um, nobody knows that issue better than Dean, and he'll tell you it's a multi-year fight to change anything. The second one was drug access and affordability, and that's something the Vice President is going to, as, as we announced, is going to make one of the focuses of the initiative. Not because it's a moral issue. It's a financial issue that requires innovation financially to let everybody who needs a life-saving drug have access to that drug while you're rewarding innovation. The health network, the health system, has never been set up to uh, help people hedge their liabilities and bring their future benefits into the present. And so when there's a life-saving drug, all you read about is it costs too much, even though it cures some people. So that is not a moral issue. That is a financial system issue. But health is unique in that farmers know more about futures markets than CEOs of drug companies and insurance companies. So farmers know how to balance their ups and downs over their lifetime. Insurance companies and pharma companies don't. And the people who lose are the patients. That's got to change. Can I ask, is there a lot of resistance from the pharma companies when you start to talk about how to balance that out and how to make sure that there's access to all medicines for all people? No, because any conversation that says they're not the whole problem is better than the conversation they've been having. You know, um, the Martin Shkreli's of the world, the EpiPens of the world, that's a unique problem. But the day-to-day -day problem that a drug is too expensive for someone they have to choose between putting their family in bankruptcy or hospice. Happens every week. That is the problem, and it's not all the drug company's problem. It's the pharmacy benefit manager, it's the insurance company, it's the provider. And then when you get down to the copay level, 
you find that the whole system is perverse. People are asked to pay more for a better drug and less for a less good drug because that's the way the system has set it up. That is the enemy. It is not that you need to demonize the innovator. You need to rationalize the system. Remember when Google did their IPO and they did a Dutch auction? A Dutch auction, you set the price that allows the most people to participate. That's not what we do in medicine. We set the price, and if you lose 10% of the people, that's too bad. Well, what price do you need to set to get 99% of the people? That's what we have to figure out. Absolutely, and those 10% of the people, it's unacceptable. It just, it just can't happen. I think that you highlight here just how important a, the cancer moonshot, you know, we have 10 moonshots, but cancer moonshot is one of them. But how important these moonshots are. This is not something that we can wait on. As, as Vice President Biden always talks about, the urgency is now. That it is about, you know, it's just one more day, one more week, one more month for some people. Because that's going to make a huge, a tremendous difference in their life and in the, in the, in the, in the lives of their family. So there was a question back here somewhere. Yes. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jen Horenjeff, uh, consultant in patient engagement and experience. And incidentally, I was one of those RA patients that went in and talked to Pfizer. Cool. So good to see you. <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering what you feel like with your experiences are some of the biggest barriers that companies or organizations have towards engaging patients earlier on to get those insights? And how do you convey the value proposition that engaging patients has? So I was at Pfizer and they said, okay, we need you to do patient engagement. I said, well, what is patient engagement? And they said, well, you should talk to all of our patient engagement people and see what's missing. So I did. I talked to people for six weeks. I talked to scores of people. Now imagine a circle. And this half of the circle is their view of the patient journey. It starts with self-suspicion. I'm peeing too much. I can't get hard. I seem to have weird pain in my joints. I'm gonna, I, maybe I need Viagra or some other drug or some other drug. So you suspect you have a problem and you go to the doctor, he confirms it, you get a prescription and then they have a marching army to keep you getting that prescription filled. That was the patient journey that I discovered when I interviewed 100 people at Pfizer and I realized if I tried to interfere with their view of that part of the journey, they'd, they'd smother me in my sleep. Because these are people who are promoting engagement and adherence, right? Well, my view of the patient journey, which I started at Pfizer, was unmet need that's already expressed by the patient, not by the company. Research into that need. Clinical trials that are patient-friendly that's focused on what patients view as a better situation, and then the development of a therapy that's patient-friendly. Nobody was working on that side of the equation. So how do you do that? So we started two things at Pfizer, and these may sound trivial, but nobody was doing them in the entire industry. Thank you letters to people in clinical trials. They serve the country as much as soldiers do. Their life is on the line for other people. And people die in clinical trials. So we started sending thank you notes. Secondly, this is old news to you, but getting feedback after the trial 
from patients was not being done. 150,000 patients a year, and nobody ever talked to them. They just looked at their medical records. So we invited the patients to opt into a network with Pfizer to answer a survey about their experience, whether they would do it again, whether they want a family member to do it, was their health care better or worse under the trial, how did they feel about the trial, and to give them more data about the trial. Nobody in the industry was doing those two things. So that was the beginning of really engaging patients around my half of the patient journey. The other half takes care of itself. I just want to also just mention, because clinical trials are so important in what, you're, what we're trying to accomplish with the Cancer Moonshot, can you just talk briefly just, what's the percentage of people that actually, actually participate in clinical trials, and where do we need to go with that? Well, in children, because most cancer patients who are children get treated in clinical trials, uh, because of the unique nature of pediatric cancers, they don't form the same way adult cancers do. It's over 90%. In adults, it's 4%. There are lots of reasons for that. You don't know how to get into a trial. Your doctor discourages you from going into a trial. You have to commute five hours each way to go to a trial, as my friend with glioblastoma did from New York to Boston. Why do you need to go from New York to Boston to do a trial? Isn't there somebody in New York who could administer the therapy the same way they do at Dana-Farber? That's not the way the culture's set up. The other thing is, if you have a standard therapy, I had a standard therapy, so I wasn't going to go into a trial. My doctor would have felt, felt that was unethical to put me in a trial when I had a standard therapy. So, but the biggest problem, and this is where Alex, who asked the first question, and her team really helped us, it was hieroglyphics to find a trial. Clinicaltrials.gov was indecipherable. So we asked a group of really smart people who understand user experience to redesign the cancer trial site so you could put in real words and a zip code and find a trial for you. And now they're doing the same thing for clinicaltrials.gov. It sounds simple. In health, nothing is simple. Yes, sir. Yep. Either one. Good. Uh, sure. Hey, Greg. Um, thanks for your great work. Um, hey. hey, Dan. You mentioned the critical elements of data sharing and unlocking for academia, pharma, AMRs. What have you learned that um, has helped unleash the data sharing, or what hasn't worked, and what could apply to other moonshots? So uh, data sharing is one of those things where it's not what you know for sure that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that's not so. So we asked a group of cancer center directors to start working on sharing data with the National Cancer Institute. And they did their first data sharing experiment with clinical trial data, which is supposedly the gold standard. Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. They got all together and they said, none of these data sets can talk to each other. None of them even make sense to other people. So that was a wake-up call to them that what they thought was true, that they could share data and they would share data, the way they collect the data makes it so much more difficult which is why data standards have got to happen in medicine the way they happen in other industries. Um, the good news is I get calls literally every week from people developing technological solutions to merge diverse data sets and make sense of them. And they're doing that. One person said they, they put together a data set on pancreatic cancer. The Cancer Genome Atlas has, um, I think it was 400 pancreatic cancer patients' data. Their data set had over 1,000. 
They showed it to some pancreatic cancer doctors. One of them started crying because they had never seen that big of a data set in pancreatic cancer, and they learned something really, really important. This has got to happen so much faster than it's happening. It's going to be a technological solution. The technology will solve it faster than the culture will solve it because our culture is way too slow. Someone's going to say, hey, we can be the motif or the mint of health data, and no matter where your data is, we'll pull it together, we'll normalize it, we'll make it functional for you, and if, if the big institutions don't want to do it, somebody else will do it, and they'll be way behind. Thank you. Rodrigo Martinez with Veritas Genetics. Um, Greg, I'm a fan, so thank you. Thank um, you. Unfortunately, I think sometimes it's not, it's not always people like you that allow for these projects to work, right? So just quickly, five times I tried to work with friends of mine at, that were at Pfizer from different departments while I was at IDEO in my previous life yeah. to try to improve patient engagement. And five times legal shut down those possibilities. So I'm, I'm not picking on Pfizer because it's Pfizer, you know, it's not very different in many other players. Yeah. So the question to you now is on the moonshot, how do you deal with the legal departments that often in many of these other stakeholders actually have a way to either accelerate and support or shut down many of these important possibilities? Right. Brute force. There's, there's no persuading your legal department. You tell them, this is our problem, what is the solution? And there, no is not the answer. Legal departments totally misunderstand HIPAA, so people use HIPAA as an excuse all the time. They worry about liability even when the patients are begging them for the information so they'll work with them, not work against them. You know, a lot of people say, well, we don't want to ask the patients about their clinical trial experience because what if it wasn't good? What company can succeed if they don't get feedback of people who don't like them? So it's leadership. It's all about leadership. If the CEO doesn't have the culture of sharing and openness, then the legal department will reflect whatever they do have. And if they have it, they have to go down to the lawyers and say, your job is to tell us how to do it, not that we can't do it. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things we talk about here at Startup Health. It has to start from the top, but it's also finding the right people, right? As we organize and support this army of entrepreneurs, it's about collecting data. So we know, guess what, if Pfizer isn't going to work with us and AstraZeneca is and they have a culture that's going to be more accepting, then that's who the entrepreneurs, that's where innovation and that's where people are going to go. And eventually Pfizer is going to go, wait a second, we're, we're losing out on a lot. Maybe we should ha change our culture. Maybe we should start hiring or bringing in batteries included people because that's really what it comes down to. Two, two quick things I learned at Pfizer. Number one, they asked me to go in and change something. I went in by myself. Well, even the son of God thought he needed 12 people to help him change something. So don't ever go in by yourself to a big organization and try to change something. You need help. The second thing was, when I finally figured out what I really wanted to do to help patients at Pfizer, the people who wanted to help me do that were not the people who reported to me. It was everybody else in the company who had, were waiting for someone with my seniority to give them cover to do what they wanted to do, and that's how we got those things done. The people working for me 
were risk averse because they didn't want to offend me in case it affected their bonus, their performance review, blah, blah, blah. So by the end of my time at Pfizer, all the people I was spending time with didn't work for me. They worked with me. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, I was just uh, shown, I think we're out of time, and I, we could continue with this. Is, it's a great, um, interesting, uh, energetic conversation. Um, I, personally, though, I have to thank you. I have truly, I've, I've been able to watch Greg and his team for the last 10, 11 months, and uh, truly, I have never seen such a hardworking, dedicated team. I mean, so much. Last time when we went to, uh, when we went to Davos, on the way back, I was exhausted, and I walked out into the, into the cabin, and the entire team was still doing work, getting ready for the next stop, and it is, it's, they're just unrelenting. And if we're going to cure cancer, if we're going to make any improvements, it truly, it's leadership like yours. And, and I think we all owe you a debt of gratitude for your passion, your energy, and everything that you're doing for all of us and our families. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.